Welcome to FinCast. I'm Juan Zarati, your host on this episode, a one-on-one with Stuart Levy, a storied journey in the world of financial integrity. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White knights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been prove it. Welcome back to FinCast. On episode 34, we are talking to Stuart Levy, one of the great professionals and pioneers in the financial integrity space, Uh, somebody I've had the privilege of working with for 20 years plus, uh, somebody who's seen as a counselor uh, to the most important institutions around the world and leaders, uh, and somebody I count as a friend. And so, Stuart, welcome to FinCast. Thank you, Juan. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to chat with you as always. Thank you, Stuart. Stuart, just to give our audience a little background, I'll, I'll, I'll run through your bio very quickly in sort of reverse order here. You were most recently the CEO of DM, previously known as the Libra Association. Before that, from 2012 to 2020, you were the chief legal officer for HSBC globally, basically the, the bank's chief lawyer around the world. And from 2004 to 2011, you were the first ever undersecretary of the Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, leading that office, uh, which is known as as TFI, of course. And before that, you were Principal Associate Deputy AG at the Department of Justice. That's where I got to know you, Stuart, after 9-11. So a storied career with incredibly important roles at incredibly important times. And we want to talk to you about it, give the audience a sense of your career, and frankly, some of the things that you've thought about and had to grapple with in those very important roles. So so thank you again, Stuart. Maybe if we can start with where your journey started in the financial integrity sort of world at TFI, at Treasury. Can you talk to the audience about the role that you had at Treasury and, and how you saw that role evolving, especially given Treasury's powers and authorities? Thank you, Juan, and thank you for the generous uh, introduction. Yes, I started at TFI uh, with you, actually, as you know, uh, in 2004. This was on the back of the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, and there was a question, what was really Treasury's role in national security after the, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, which took most of the law enforcement authority away from the Treasury Department? And uh, your listeners will know because they've read your book. So I won't, I'll keep it pretty, pretty. uh, We hope they have, we hope they have. (laughs) Pretty brief. Treasury has a number of authorities, which turned out to be very vital to our national security. And I would say in some ways, this is an example of less is more. They took away some of the um, parts of the Treasury Department and left the core authorities. And when we started to focus on those authorities, we realized, I think even to the surprise of some of us who were doing it, how powerful they, they could be. Uh, and it very quickly, you know, evolved from where it was in 2004, where people questioned why we existed to sort of the center piece of, of, of our national security policy in many ways. If you think about our response to Russia, uh, it's, it, it draws upon these treasury authorities, uh, um, you know, fairly dramatically. And 
that's a, a major change. Actually, sort of comically, I remember, and I think I may have even called you about this, on the eve of the invasion of Ukraine, you had Zelensky going public to the world talking about, we need to de-swift Russian banks. And all I could th think was, that's incredible. Like no one knew what SWIFT was except for like four of us in 2004. This has become very, very critical. And I think in, in some ways we were fortunate, I'll say this, because the U.S. was facing national security challenges at the time, uh, terrorism, uh, North Korea and Iran, that really lent themselves to the effective use of Treasury's tools. And that allowed us to create a certain credibility, credibility globally that what we did mattered and credibility within the U.S. government that we could deliver for whoever the president was at the time. Uh, and so I think over time, we were able to transform skepticism around TFI into something that people now, I think, almost universally would say is an important part of our national security architecture. Stuart, I think your credibility and leadership had a huge role to play in that. And it, it shouldn't be missed by the listeners how pivotal you were and how important your role was throughout the history and the development early on of TFI. You weren't just leading the terrorist financing issues, uh, but also the Iran uh, sanctions campaign. You were dealing with North Korea along with folks like Danny Glazer. Even at the tail end of your tenure, you were dealing with the Arab Spring and having to freeze Gaddafi's assets and deal with those issues. And you, you were pivotal in the transition from the Bush administration to the Obama administration. You were one of the only senior officials that was kept on uh, by the Obama team uh, precisely because of your importance and the importance of the role of TFI. Can you speak to kind of those episodes and, and you know, how important that role was I, you're always humble, so you're not going to talk so much about yourself, but how important that role was for the U.S. government through those episodes and through the transition. Well, thank you, Juan. You're generous. But, but the, the, this is what I meant, that we were able to develop some credibility because what we did mattered and people saw the effectiveness of it on all of those issues, North Korea, counterterrorism, Iran, Libya, et cetera. And we had a great team, as you know, and I, I think Danny, you're right to, to single him out on North Korea as, as a critical player. I think it was, a, it, it sent a good message. And one of the, I, I of course was personally happy to do it because I loved the job, but also I think it sent a good message to um, the entire national security uh, community to have me hold over and, you know, serve in the Obama administration as well as the Bush administration. I mean, Thinking back on it now, uh, it, uh, it may not seem so dramatic, but that was a pretty dramatic transition in political terms. The fact that that President Obama asked me to stay, I think, sent a good message that this portfolio should be viewed as a national security portfolio. Uh, you know, we have continuity in our military and in our intelligence uh, community, but this was, you know while located in the Treasury Department, I think also a, a national security role. And that, I think, was the key point. The key point was this shouldn't be political in the same sense. It should be viewed as a national security role. Yeah. And, and people should know that at the time, it wasn't quite clear what would happen, actually. It wasn't clear what would happen to leadership or even the office itself or the function. I think those of us who believe deeply in it 
felt and understood it was critical and, and should continue. But in political terms, you're right. There was a lot of uh, tectonic shifts happening. It wasn't quite clear. And, and you being there at TFI, I think it was a very clear signal that there would be continuity and an apolitical sort of sense of the way the office would operate, which, which is how you operated it. I want to get into some more detail on sanctions. I want to talk a little bit about Iran, compare that to Russia, and maybe even talk about sanctions policy writ large. But before mm-hmm. doing that, I kind of love your thoughts because you, you, you served at the time actually as acting secretary of the treasury in the interim period. Can you reflect on sort of the power of treasury writ large? Because often people equate the role of treasury in, in the field of illicit finance as being kind of the, the, the sanctions Right. implementers or, or administrators, but it's more than that. Can you explain no. to the audience why? Well, I think your audience probably does know this, but, it, but it's important for the public to, to understand. First of all, the Treasury Department as a whole it has, an, has a massive economic, international economic portfolio that's important for all the national security issues, and that's even outside of TFI. So let's just be clear that there's this whole, you know, Office of International Affairs and the, you know, the, the multinational development banks, et cetera, that are, that are critical. But even within TFI, you shouldn't, we don't want to think about TFI as OFAC on steroids. You know, OFAC is critical and the implementation of sanctions is critical, but there are you know, a number of other aspects to this. I think one of the things that was new when we created TFI was the creation of a true intelligence office uh, within Treasury that I think has now transformed Treasury in change even the culture of Treasury to have that full, full membership in the intelligence community for reasons that I think those in, people in government will, will understand. But there's also the entire systemic part of our illicit finance work. It's the money laundering regulations within the United States that are, you know, where FinCEN has the key role. And then there's the systemic integrity of the system globally, where the Office of Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, DFFC as we call it, has a critical role in driving that. All of those things, you know, fit together nicely. They're critically important. But and while sanctions get, you know, deservedly a lot of attention in the in the current environment, first of all, those sanctions only work if the other parts, the other legs of the stool are in place and, and are effective. And to the extent sometimes that sanctions don't work as well as we like, it's because uh, the, the integrity of the system globally isn't where it needs to be. So, you know, I think it's important that we realize the, the breadth of the portfolio. Reminds me, Stuart, you and I worked for Sam Bodman, who was Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, he later became the Energy Secretary under President Bush. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, him saying once, it, you know, he'd come from the Commerce Department, which does a lot of different things. He said, what's great about the Treasury is not only sort of the breadth of its reach and its power, but it's pretty straightforward in terms of what it's about. It's about money, right? It's about money <laughs> and the financial system. You know, that's one way of thinking about it. And it, through that, you have enormous power and influence and reach as a result. Re- reflecting on, on sanctions specifically now, because, you, again, you were, you were driving the more aggressive and innovative sanctions in, in U.S. history. Um, on the Iran side, you had a kind of a, a long sort of march of what I call the constriction campaign against Iran, pressure at different stages against different sectors over time, many years, starting back in 2005. And how do you compare that to what you've seen with Russia, which has seemed to be kind of a, 
a blitzkrieg of sanctions, you know, trying to cripple the Russian economy. Well, you, you, you've, you've, as usual, you, you've, you've got the point in your, in, in your question. I mean, I probably got, I literally got a million frequent flyer miles to get to the place where they, where they started on Russia, <laughs> going around the world, trying to build support for tiny steps at a time. Now, partially that was because, you know, people were skeptical about the effectiveness of these tools. And, you know, we were trying to persuade the world that sanctions could work on Iran. And even within our own government, as you know, there was some skepticism about whether sanctions could work. And I remember even the whole idea for the Iran campaign, if you will, came from a comment that President Bush made where he said, because US companies were forbidden to deal with Iran, that we were, quote, sanctioned out on Iran. And that sort of, you know, motivated our whole team to say, wait a minute, we can come up with a better plan. And we, we socialized it within the government and then we got to execute. And it took us years to get to the place where they got to on Russia, where now there is a playbook that people understand and that they understand what's effective and what's not effective. You know, like one of the things that I've been paying attention to in recent weeks is the use of insurance to sort of get at the shipping industry. Look, I mean, maybe someone smarter than I am would have figured it out faster, but that wasn't obvious to me when I started at Treasury. It took me time to, to recognize that was a tool. And then we, and then we used it on Iran. But you know, all of those lessons, as it should be, have been learned. And there's an institutional memory now in Treasury, which I think is important to the future of these tools, you know, that we need to be stewards of the tools and continue to sharpen them. And I think that's a good example of one where you know, they can now jump to the end. Now, of course, Russia is a tougher target. R Russia has its own leverage, as we know, both in, in terms of oil and gas and almost despicably their ability to control the export of food and massive military power. So, you know, Russia is a tough target, but what we've been able to do is, you know, implement a great deal of sanctions, you know, sort of a, a pretty wide array of sanctions uh, very, very quickly. Kudos to the Treasury Department and, and, you know, their colleagues around the government to sort of get that in place as quickly as they did you know, a massive number of designations, different types of import and export controls, all these things that, that normally, you know, they take a lot of time, they did it very quickly. That's a great thing. But now we're struggling with, and, you know, maybe we can discuss it a little, the, the limitations that Russia as a particular target poses and some of the challenges that we, that we have there, despite really good work being done by the, the, certainly by the team at the Treasury Department, done an excellent job. I want to ask you about that because there is a question, certainly lots of questions in the media about whether or not sanctions can ultimately be effective against major economy, Russia being the 11th largest economy in the world, shrinking, I think, quickly here. But they still have uh, massive oil and gas revenue, close to a billion dollars a day out of their trade with, with Europe, for example, which has been so much of a focus. It's sort of a gaping hole in the sanctions. Um, and so are there, are there natural limits to what sanctions can do to major economies? And certainly there's lots of talk about what, what might happen if China were to decide to invade Taiwan. Um, you know, are sanctions even feasible against a, a Chinese economy that's so important to the U.S. economy? How do you think about both the limits and, and potentially even overuse of sanctions in foreign policy? We can't view sanctions as being magical, 
right? I mean, there was some talk about, you know, given what we now know about Putin's uh, determination to do this, it was unrealistic to think that the threat of the threat of sanctions alone was going to deter. And so, the idea that people would think, oh, sanctions are you know some sort of magic tool that we can just say, oh, we're going to impose sanctions, it's going to we'll get whatever we want. No, I don't agree with that. Having, having said that, well implemented sanctions can inflict severe pain. And that is a tool in our national security policy. And if you think about, if you think of our goal on Russia as being to ensure that this is a strategic failure for Russia, right? Then sanctions are an important part of that because not only have we imposed these sanctions, which are damaging to their economy, but also we've gotten, and this was key in the Iran the effectiveness of the Iranian sanctions, but especially key in the uh, in the effectiveness of the Russia sanctions, we have gotten massive private sector amplification of of the sanctions. Now, partially that's because Putin has done things that have offended the private sector, but partially it's because it's it's part of what we're encouraging officially, which is that the private sector is is trying to get out of doing business with Russia in a, in, on a business as usual basis. That will have a long-term impact on Russia. As, as you know well, because we've discussed it, Juan, it's very hard to reverse that, right? Um, once the private sector says, we're not doing business with this regime and you know, in this country, that's not so easily reversed unless that regime, when I say the word changes here, I mean, I mean change behavior. And that's the regime changes behavior and makes it more acceptable to go back. But I think that the sanctions have been a, uh, will be effective. Obviously, we have to struggle with the gaping hole that you talked about, which we, we have to. But the, the massive exodus of the private sector from Russia is a big part of why these sanctions will have a, a real impact. Stuart, I couldn't agree more. And I think some of this is the front running of the private sector ahead of sanctions has been pretty dramatic. And part of that, to your point, is the reputational risk and weight of, of the atrocities that uh, the Russians are, are engaged in in Ukraine. And frankly, the lack of legitimacy as to what Putin's doing, right? There's just no, there's no, there's no legitimate reason for, for what he's doing. And I think that that has swayed the private sector. Absolutely. I, I want to use this as a pivot to your role at HSBC because you did sit in a principal role where you had to help one of the major global banks deal with illicit finance risk coming out of the 2012 deferred prosecution agreement where HSBC was found to be uh, lacking in its anti-money laundering controls and its sanctions controls and all the rest, and, and frankly, risked losing its license to operate in the US, which would, would have been the death knell for the bank. You were brought on to clean it up, to help lead out of uh, that deferred prosecution and to help create a, a culture of compliance in the bank that would be sustainable and could stand up to regulators. Before, I want to, before we get into the details of that, there was a really important op-ed that you wrote in May of 2016, which goes to the point you were making about the private sector and the risk that it considers in terms of sanctions. And that was in the wake of the joint comprehensive a, a agreement on uh, Iran, the Iran nuclear talks, where Secretary Kerry was traveling throughout Europe and trying to convince at least European companies to do business in Iran and to invest in Iran. And you wrote a very influential and important op-ed in the Wall Street Journal at the time 
questioning, you know, what, what the message was, the mixed messages from the U.S., and in essence saying, look, we're not going back in because it's too risky. Yeah. Can you speak to that and, and frankly, your role at HSBC in guiding a bank that is so big and comp- complicated in managing these kinds of risks that aren't just sort of regulatory risks. These are like geopolitical risks of the highest order. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, well, I can try. Thanks, Juan. I mean, and your audience should know that, that one of the things I did while I was at HSBC was to bring you on as, a, as an advisor to our board uh, to, to help us with, with all of these things. I'm um, grateful for that, Stuart. Thank you. So, look, what we were, had to do at HSBC was was essentially adopt a uh, highest common denominator approach, which was, you know, we operated all over the world. Uh, previously, there had been all sorts of different standards applied in different jurisdictions. And we had to say, look, we're going to live up to the highest standards that we can. These would be U.S. standards, certainly uh, around the world. Now, that was a struggle. It takes time. You know, it can't be implemented instantly or perfectly, but that was the goal and that was the cultural goal. And we worked very, very hard at it, as you know, and we got out of our deferred prosecution agreement on time, which which was uh, a, a real achievement, I think. The, as part of that, though, we, we developed this, you know, cultural instinct that, you know, we would only do business with customers that we felt, you know, lived up to the appropriate standards. And, you know, in the Iran context, there were a whole number of institutions and entities, think IRGC, which is obviously in the news at the moment, where we were not going to do business with, with, with these entities or institutions, or frankly, with the regime in Iran at all, because of the you know, reputational risk, the fact that they had, you know, engaged in the conduct that led them to be sanctioned in the first place. And then we had the US government sort of anomalously asking us to start to do business with them just because the government had lifted sanctions. And my view of this is that the government can lift sanctions, but the private sector has its own risk management and reputational risks to take into account. And if an entity had been designated for terrorism or for proliferation, the fact that the government lifted sanctions on it without te- without saying that they didn't really engage in that bad conduct meant that we still had the same you know risk management uh, responsibilities. So this is gets back to the point that y- y- you can make a political deal to lift sanctions, and I think there's you know that's a legitimate thing for a government to do. But if you care about the integrity of the system, you have to say, well, the the private sector will continue to make its own assessments of integrity and make whatever appropriate decisions that they that they need to make and that was what i thought you know was was a message worth making in in light of secretary Kerry's advocacy to us and as you can imagine anyone who's worked in the company knows this was also the view of our ceo and board who had worked very hard to instill this culture in the in the institution yeah Stuart, and I, and I think and we talk about this a lot on FinCast, it's, it's the blending of sanctions risks and illicit finance risk, and that very much becoming part of risk management for institutions around the world and you know, how you manage those risks, regardless of what one country or another may say with respect to its laws or regulations is, is critical. H- how did you, you know, the sun never set on HSBC, <laughs> much like the British Empire. <laughs> 
how did you how did you think about balancing the risks as you were implementing this highest global standard approach, which was novel, which was a huge commitment, when you had so many different countries, so many different cultures, so many different systems to have to sort of integrate and manage? You know, how did you how did you balance the risks within the the bank itself? It was a big effort. To, it was because it was a, it changed from the way the bank had previously been operated. I was. It only would have worked if I'd had a CEO that was willing to you know, stand behind us. And so Stuart Gulliver, who was our CEO, was very committed to getting this done once we decided to do it. So we had to do that. And it, and it required you know, a lot of engagement with stakeholders in different countries. Because so, sometimes, sometimes it was just, you know, this is what we're going to do and it's fine. But some, some, some countries didn't like some of the things that we were doing. And we had to be you know, candid with them that this is, this is important. This is how we're going to do it. And, uh, you know, try to be transparent. And I think once 99% of the time we sat down with folks and it explained why you had to do it, how important it was to the future of the institution, how it allowed us to continue to help their country, wherever you were sitting, you know, integrate into the global economy. People were, were, were understanding and supportive, but it, it, it did require those sorts of conversations. And, I think people understand the, the sort of risks that we were that, that we were managing. It sounds easy to say it out loud like that, but as, as you know, because you saw it, you know, up close and personal, it was a struggle in some in some jurisdictions. But we, you know, I think we we managed to do it, you know, reasonably well. Yeah, HSBC but, is a yeah. is a is a big beast of an organization, like so many other multinationals. Hard hard yes. to manage it. Well, let me ask you this, because you know, industry often complains that too much is asked of banks in particular, major commercial banks in particular, dollar clearing banks to police the system. And now given the kind of the role of sanctions in geopolitics sort of made obvious in, in the Russia case, do you think institutions like HSBC or just other banks are asked to do too much to manage these kinds of risks and, and are caught between a rock and a hard place, a and Charybdis Often, especially now that you have China and, and the U.S. sort of doing more battle in this space, I don't think they're being asked to do too much. To be honest, I mean, I think it can be made more efficient, and you know, etc. There's a whole conversation that I know you all have on this podcast all the time about that, and you know, of course. But but this is important to our national security. I think the Russia example is a perfect example of we need we the United States need to continue to be able to impose sanctions effectively to protect our national security. That means requiring the financial system to be able to implement those sanctions and banks are critical to that implementation. Now, I know we'll talk about this, but banks are not the only thing that's critical to that implementation. It only works, you know, we, we, we need to have a financial system that, that can implement sanctions and not just the banks, but the banks, you know, uh, are important to the implementation of sanctions. And I don't think that we're asking too much to say that they should know who they're transacting with, what are the natures, what's the nature of the transaction, who the beneficiaries of the transactions are, you know, is it transshipping the port where it's not allowed to go? I mean, the rules are complex, but the banks are capable of doing it and they're capable of doing it and continuing to be profitable enterprises. Uh, which is important, and the integrity of the system depends on it, and the safety 
of our societies depend on the ability to be able to implement these sanctions. So no, I would I would not agree that we're asking too much. We're we're asking them to play an important role in a system where they frankly benefit uh, as well from the existence of the system. And you're right, sir. You had mentioned it earlier too. Sanctions policy implemented through the insurance sector being very important. The shipping sector, I remember you wrote a very important op-ed in the Financial Times about the need to focus more on the shipping sector and the maritime domain in terms of sanctions implementation mm-hmm. and evasion, uh, whether it was Iran or North Korea. And all obviously now many eyes are on crypto. And, and that was that's a journey that you've taken given your role as CEO of DM. Can you talk to us about sort of that migration? So you went from a very traditional, storied, you know, institution like HSBC to a very new kind of cutting edge venture launched by Facebook at the time with Libra and part of the association, independent of Facebook, obviously. And you were leading DM. Can you talk to us about that leap and why you jumped yeah. into that role? Yeah, I, I was happy to. I essentially had two reasons for wanting to 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 make that transition. I, you know, I, I saw crypto and digital assets growing. And I saw two risks that, that I felt like I, I wanted to see if I could help manage. One was that is this if this developed and uh, the West didn't play an active role in the development of it, that we would cede the space to essentially the Chinese. And uh, I thought that was a mistake. I mean, I do think that this is a technology which has a lot to offer and that there's great utility in certain respects from this technology. And I didn't want to see all of the development to be done by China. And secondly, there is a significant illicit finance risk in crypto. And I wanted to try to create a project that managed the illicit finance risk much as I think the the traditional financial sector has had to grapple with with illicit finance to sort of set high standards for illicit finance in controlling those risks in crypto. And so what we tried to, and I think did design at Diem, was a crypto project that had extremely high financial crime standards and consumer protection standards, the type of project that I think regulators should welcome in due course. Uh, so it was, it was the desire to sort of take practical steps in both of the, against both of those risks that led me to, to want to do the, the Libra slash DM project. Stuart, and in, in you put out a statement when DM and its, uh, its intellectual property was sold to Silvergate in, in January of this year. And it was a statement that was, had great pride in it in terms of the work you were doing and what you and the team were trying to do. A little bit of disappointment in how the regulators responded. Could you speak to kind of why you thought or think the regulators weren't as as open to the launch of DM as as they should have been or could have been? Well, look, you know, the regulators. I think you know, I'm sure they 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 took their their decisions and what was in their view best for the United States at, at the time, and and they did, felt that they didn't want us to get started until there was a comprehensive regulatory framework and. I, I guess I, I, I can understand that. I was disappointed, naturally, because I felt like we had built a project that I think has a lot to recommend it. You know, we had come up with a way 
to essentially we were going to KYC all the, the, the participants in our ecosystem, which I think would be an important way to control money laundering and sanctions evasion risk. We were going to have a fully backed stable coin, you know, 100% backed plus a capital buffer all in US treasuries or cash. I think the world has now seen what happens when you don't have that and people have been harmed. So I think, you know, we, we had design features that were extremely valuable from a risk management safety perspective. And, you know, I would have liked to have seen us get started uh, for that reason. Secondly, even in the months since, since the, our assets were sold to Silvergate, we've seen, you know, Ru- Russia invade Ukraine, et cetera, the importance of the ability to implement sanctions. I think one lesson we can take from the Russia war, the Russia-Ukraine war, is that the type of sanctions that we have imposed are valuable and important, but they have also heightened the resistance to the unilateral imposition of sanctions by the United States, not just in China. You know, you can see the, the, the countries that have decided not to join the coalition on sanctions. So, you know, it's India, it's South Africa, it's the, all of our Gulf you know, traditional allies, et cetera, who have not imposed these sanctions. Um, I want to make sure that the United States continues to be able to impose sanctions. One worry I have is whether the crypto ecosystem could evolve into an ecosystem that is outside of our ability to impose sanctions effectively. That was something which at least I was you know, committed to at Diem, making sure that the ecosystem that we built was going to, when I made the promise explicit, we would impose US sanctions and the sanctions of any of our democratic allies across the entire ecosystem. I think that there is you know, some question as to whether we will continue to be able to do that if the crypto ecosystem grows dramatically. At the moment, of course, crypto, the crypto ecosystem is not a way for massive evasion. I think that, that that's probably true. It's too small. But what happens if the crypto ecosystem grew dramatically, say grew 10 times, 1,000 times where it is now? Would we still be able to impose sanctions effectively? Secondly, the primary tool we use to ensure that sanctions are not being evaded through crypto now is that you know, we have regulated exchanges, regulated nodes within the crypto ecosystem and the use of blockchain analytics, that there's a lot of great work going on there. And the people involved in it should, should be commended. But through no fault of theirs, if the crypto ecosystem grew a 1,000x, and people no longer had to convert their crypto into fiat currency in order to use it. So suppose you could live in crypto. Then those analytics that depend now on those people going in and out of fiat would be potentially less effective in sort of controlling sanctions evasion and money laundering as well, by the way. So I, I, I just, these were risks that I saw and wanted to see if we could contribute something positive to the management of those risks through Libra Diem. And I still think there are risks that, that, that I know people are grappling with, but they're, they're, they're ones that I think we still need to resolve. Sure. Those are really important insights, especially given where some of the technology is headed with Web 3.0, sort of 
crypto, you know, enabling the virtual world and your point about uh, the choke points and nodes in the system and, and uh, whether or not there are these clearinghouses where uh, there can be validation of users and, and uh, insurance uh, against illicit use, et cetera, really important points. Let me ask you this, because the raging debate around more aggressive regulation of stable coins in light of what we've seen with Terra USD and, and Luna and uh, the volatility in the market and, and certainly a lot of pain that we've seen in, in this crypto winter. How do you see kind of the stablecoin market evolving? Um, and, and how does this match against what China's doing with their digital yuan and even what the US is considering in terms of issuing a, a digital dollar? How, how do you see that kind of the landscape evolving there? Well, obviously a big, a big question that can't really do justice in, in a couple of minutes, but clearly stable coins have to be stable. And you know what we were going to build at DM was a very stable stable coin with you know backed all by short term treasuries and cash and a capital buffer on top of it. But even then, we always said and we told the regulators, if you issue a digital dollar, if you the Fed issue a digital dollar, we will take our stable coin away. We will use yours because sort of by definition, there is nothing safer than in terms of a, a digital dollar, then a digital dollar issued by the Federal Reserve. So if the idea was to have a, a, a stable coin that was, that was safe, the safest one is the one that the US government would issue. Now, whether that was net, is necessary, that's a question, you know, whether the Fed would say a well-regulated private, privately issued stable coin is, is safe enough, that's a decision for them. But we always said, look, you know, we, we're not going to be able to compete with, in terms of safety. There are issues, of course. Let me take a step back. If you think of crypto in general, there's, there are these speculative assets, which I'll put to the side for a minute. And then there are things that are stable coins that are used you know, to, to sort of facilitate transactions. And that's uh, one way to sort of get the benefit of the blockchain technology. I think that there are tremendous potential, va potential value to be gleaned from that technology in terms of cross-border payments, trade finance, tokenization of assets, et cetera. And I think you'll see that. But just because the technology can add value doesn't mean that you know, the, our society has to decide what are the design features that we want that reflect our values. And so you ask about China, China will, will design a digital yuan where the central bank of China will, will ultimately have access to every single transaction who conducted it, and they'll use it in their social scoring, and it'll become part of the surveillance state. Okay, I don't think that's what we want. But we do want, and in the West, we don't want to go to the other extreme. What we want is a, is a healthy balance between security and privacy. We want privacy within reason, but we want to be able to control money laundering, stop ransomware attacks, impose sanctions, protect consumers, et cetera. And that requires a set of controls in place. Now, they can be put in place by regulating stable coins, or they can be put in place through a CBDC, a, a, a digital dollar, but we'll need to come up with those controls. It's obviously a number of issues embedded yeah. in there, but one thing that I, that I think is encouraging is that the Fed came out with a paper where they said if they do issue a digital dollar, they would want it to be intermediated, meaning that they would issue it in the, to the banks and then the banks 
or other trusted players would then issue it to, to the general public. What's the reason for that? The reason for that is they want traditional KYC to be applied. That does not currently exist in, in the crypto ecosystem in general. But if you had a digital dollar that, that was intermediated like that, you could get types of financial crime controls that I think we've been alluding to in our conversation. And Stuart, you're speaking to as well, I think a very interesting question about the model, which is maybe not totally centralized, maybe not totally decentralized. Maybe you know there, there are models in between, especially an American model that could rely on multiple stable coins a US-backed digital dollar and multiple players acting as intermediaries in that regard it could be very interesting as, a, as an alternate model. Let me ask you this question. Just it, it strikes me as you're talking, because you had to do so much sort of education, I think, with regulators. When you were at HSBC and also when you were at DM, do you think that regulators, law enforcement, you know, public policy officials have the capacity to deal with kind of the quickening pace of technology, the demands on the private sector. It always feels like the regulators are a half step behind. It's a little unfair, I think. But what what are your thoughts on that? Because you've had to deal and grapple with this from both sides of the ledger. I think, yes, absolutely. They, they can deal with this and they are dealing with it. I, I view the regulatory challenge is not being insurmountable at all. I think, you know, in some ways, the regulator's job is to set the expectation, you know, and I think um, if you set an expectation that we're going to need to be able to implement sanctions just as effectively, we're going to need to have effective consumer protection, you know, we need, they can set these expectations and challenge the industry to, to meet them. Frankly, I think sometimes it's the industry that tries to argue that, oh, you know, the technology is really complicated, so you you regulators don't understand it. I I, I think, and I'm not pointing at any individual or group, I just think that there's a a general thought in the the tech world that, oh, the regulators, you know, they're they, they don't quite get this. I always took a different approach, which is that the regulators know that they have a really important job. They're responsible for the stability of the system. If something goes terribly wrong, they're not going to point at the at the tech world. They're going to point at the regulator and say, you know, how do you let that go wrong? And so they 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 have a, just a different set of goals and and duties that they're pursuing effectively and and diligently. And I, I don't think it's a question of you know, the regulators aren't capable of understanding this. I think that, you know, you you start to get into that. I always felt, you know, both when I was a litigator and when I was a regulated party, if you start thinking that the person on the other side of the table doesn't get it. You're going to be sorely mistaken. You're you're mistaken. The person on the other side of the table does get it. They might not agree with you, but then, you know, you might be wrong or you need to do a better job of of persuading. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's that's well put. Stuart, I think we could go on forever. In fact, we may have to schedule a part due to uh, have another FinCast with you. So you've been super generous with your time. But I, I do want to ask kind of one final question about strategic challenges ahead. And given the various roles you've played, very senior roles, and you've, you've been all around the world, what are the, you know, what are the one or two strategic challenges ahead that, that worry you most? So a lot of talk about the role of the dollar, 
challenges with China, which you've already talked about. What, what are the things that worry you in this space most? We have touched on the things that worry me. I, I, I do worry about whether we're going to see a China-led, but not solely China-focused movement to develop a payment system that does not allow for the U.S. to implement sanctions or even a small number of countries to implement sanctions. I think that's a real strategic risk for the United States. I think right now we have a nice coalition with the G7, et cetera, but we all saw and we've all seen stresses during the prior administration around, even with our close allies, around the implementation of sanctions. But I think it's important that we be able to to do that. So one is that challenge we face from China on the one hand, but but a number of countries. I do think that you know we, we we've touched a little bit on the the regulatory framework that we need to develop around crypto and digital assets to make sure that it's safe. I don't think that that's something which is unattainable or even that difficult. I think it'll happen. It's just a, it, it, there's work to be done. And then I, I you know I guess I would say. I do think sometimes about the stewardship of our of our financial tools. There's in, in any one instance, there's a desire to maximize the use of the tools in order to, if your adversary is bad, and I'm using my fingers to make you know air quotes, you know, the adversary is bad, you know, as Putin undoubtedly is, then there's uh, a certain sentiment. Let's just maximize the use of our tools. I think there's a stewardship element where the Treasury Department and, and actually the whole administration has a, has a needs to step back and say, you know, we need to make sure these tools are are still available to us in the next administration. Sometimes that means being modest in the use of sanctions. Or other financial tools. I'm not making any comment on Russia, which I think justifies very, very tough sanctions. But we have, over the course of the last several years, let's go back, you know, to the last administration, seen sanctions used in ways that make it difficult for us to maintain that coalition for the ability to implement sanctions. Let's let's be honest. The UN is not ever going to be a sanctions imposing power in the future not with the relationship with China and Russia as it is in their, their veto in the Security Council. The only way we're going to be able to implement sanctions is through a coalition. So coalition preservation becomes even more important in the future than it was in the past. And we have to be very thoughtful about how we use sanctions and combine them with, with, with very, very energetic diplomacy to make sure that we build as much support for them as possible when we do implement them, not just view them as something that we can impose at our whim. Super well said, Stuart. Coalitions of, of nation states in the private sector too, I would, I would just add. I think- you, I agree, I agree, yes, in the private sector as well. Yeah. Stuart, a ton of wisdom and everything you said. I, I honestly do think we, we need another conversation or two uh, to follow up. <laughs> But that was a, a tour de force around not only a storied career, but storied in, uh, you know, journey in this world of financial integrity and insights, given the various uh, and critical roles that you've played. Uh, so I want to thank you for your time, Stuart. I know how valuable it is and appreciate your friendship and, and camaraderie over the years. So thank you for joining us 
Likewise, Juan. Likewise, Juan. All of that. All the way. I'll, I'll back to you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. That'll do it for episode 34, our one-on-one with Stuart Levy. What a great privilege that was. Please join us on our next FinCast. For now, I'm Juan Zarati. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to FinCast. We hope you join us for future episodes. Have a great day.